Hello, buddies, fellow Franco fans. It is I, your host, Jason Rudy, and welcome once again to the Franco Observer Podcast. This is episode 7 of the Franco Observer Podcast. On this one, we review the film The Girl from Rio, which is directed, of course, by Just Franco, and this one is produced by Harry Allen Towers. The Girl from Rio is film number 19, shot by Just Franco in 1968. Um, this is an episode that I review with uh, Dan Farron from Los Angeles, California, via Zoom. This is the second Zoom episode that we did for Franco Observer. The first one I did was with uh, Greta Carey from Seattle, Washington. And this episode seven, the next one's with Dan Farron from Los Angeles, California. Dan Farron is a friend of mine I know through the Cauliflower Alley Club. Cauliflower Alley Club is a group of assorted wrestling personalities, wrestlers, people that were in the business, and fans of the business. Uh, it's a good organization. They take care of retired and elderly wrestlers and wrestlers that are currently in the business that fall upon financial hardships, that get injured, have cancer, have tax problems, uh, need help from other wrestlers. And it's a good organization. We meet every year. In Las Vegas, California, in Las Vegas, Nevada, around uh, like May or so of every year, we couldn't do it last year because of COVID. But um, yeah, so we uh, are going to do it again in the year of 2021. Uh, this episode is recorded in December of 2020. Um, Dan Farron has a good history in the wrestling business. He's been a referee. He's been a promoter. He's been a personality. He's uh, done a lot in wrestling. Uh, he'll tell you about some of that. I'll have him give some of his credentials when he comes on. But, uh, yeah, he's he's definitely an entertaining guy and a good friend of mine that I wanted to have uh, watch one of the uh, Jess Franco films. So, with this one, this will be uh, The Girl from Rio. And, uh, like I said before... This is The Girl from Rio, Spain. It's The production is Harry Allen Towers. So, of course, as said before, he has many uh, other... Um, once he gets a film together, he it's not his own money. He gets other producers from other countries, and they all kind of pull together and do these films for distribution rights. So in this one, The Girl from Rio, he has Spain, West Germany, USA, and UK of 1968. Uh, the original theatrical title in the country of origin is La Cuidad Sin Hombres, Spanish theatrical title. The German theatrical title was Die Seben Manner der Sumuru, uh, the German theatrical title. And the USA theatrical title was Mothers of America, which is odd. I've never heard that one before. Um, the alternative titles for this, the Italian theatrical was Sumuru, Regina de Femina. Uh, the Brazilian theatrical title is Amorer de Rio, The River Woman, Amor do Rio. Uh, the U.S. theatrical version, I think that was released through AIP TV, was uh, Future Women. 
there's versions of that floating around too on DVDRs and such. Uh, the the Portuguese DVD is Egarota do Rio, the River Girl. Uh, let's see, Rio seventy was the shooting title, possibly an export title. Uh, the production companies for this was were Auto Films, ADA Auto Films from Madrid. Uh, from Berlin, we had Terra Filmkunst Jim. GmbH. Uh, the New York London one was Udastex Films. Udastex Films Incorporated. Uh, the Berlin, the German prints came from uh, Terror Film Kunst out of Berlin. And uh, we had the London, the English prints came from Udastex Films Limited. Uh, theatrical distribution is uh, D I C I N S A. That's the Distributo Cinematográfica International SA from Madrid. Uh, Constantin Films out of Munich. And Gerald Fine, Fine Products out of Los Angeles, California. On this, the shooting date was February 1968. It got the certificate in West Germany in February of 69. And the West German premiere was March 14th of 1969. And after the West German premiere, it played in Italy, April 6th of 1970, about a year later. And then about two years later, it played Barcelona in March of 72. And then it played almost a year later in Madrid in February of 1973. And finally, it played in the United States of America as Women of America on November 2nd of 1973. Uh, the theatrical running times on this, Spain is 79 minutes, and West Germany is 79 minutes. The cast and crew for this film are Shirley Eaton plays Sumuru, but in this one she's called Sunanda. We had Richard Weiler as Jeff Sutton, George Sanders as Sir Massius, Maria Rome as Leslie Manners, manicurist. Marta Reeves as Ulo Rossini, kidnapped young woman. Alisa Montes plays Irene, Sir Massis's girlfriend. Uh, Benny Cardoso, who's in quite a few of Franco films. This is the first one. She plays Yana, Sumuru, second-in-command. Uh, Herbert Fleischman plays Carl, Sir Massis's assistant. Walter Riela plays Uno Rossini, the bake manager. And uh, Jess Franco plays a guitar player on the promenade. And then some other uncredited. Uh, credits directed by Jess Franco. Screenplay by Harry Allen Towers as Peter Welbeck. Uh, Franz Eichhorn on the Spanish Prince. And Carl Leder on the German Prince. Uh, this is based on characters created by Sax Romer. Director of photography, Manuel Marino. Editors, Alan Morrison for the German United States Prince. Angel Serrano on the Spanish Prince. Karin Wittengoff on the German Prince. Art director on this is Peter Manhart. Music's by Daniel White. Producer Harry on Towers. Executive producer Tibor Reeves. Production coordinator Juan Esterlich. Production managers Robert Becker. Bruno Leder. Assistant directors Ronald Piberos for Spanish Prince. Ricardo Franco for the Euro, English Euro. I'm sorry, the English language Prince. Continuity is Carmen. Se Carmen Salas, and makeup is by Stuart Freeborn. Camera operator is 
Javier Zofio. And we had sound is Peter Scholler, sound recording, Echophone essay. And dialogue director is Manfred Kohler. So in um, Murderous Passions, the Delirious Cinema of Jesus Franco, Volume 1, by author Stephen Thrower, uh, I take some of the, um, I take most of the um, research on this film from this book. And on this he writes, production notes, Hot on the heels of the blood of Fu Manchu came The Girl from Rio, shot in February 1968, a sci-fi fantasy adventure about a female villain determined to eradicate men from the world. Although the film appears not to have been released in Great Britain, Anglo-amalgamated film distributors, who released a number of Towers films in the UK, obviously plan to do so, going as far as to generate poster artwork and readiness. So this film, the lead is Shirley Eaton, and uh, the, dead, the film's deadliest villainess, called Sunanda, in the dialogue, neither Sumuru, as in the Sax Romer source book, nor Sumitra, as the end credits insist, is played by Shirley Eaton, iconic female star of, Se- of Goldfinger. But there ain't much sparkle here. In Sax Romer's The Sins of Sumuru, the arch-villainess is described as possessing the arts of Circe and the allurements of Calypso, the brains of Winston Churchill, and the soul of A. Himmler. Eaton, on the other hand, manages the arts and allurements of a bored suburban dominatrix on her day off, alternating without explanation between dark hair and an unflattering blonde wig. She's a curiously anonymous creature who seems one minute in her late twenties, the next in her early forties. As she glares with what's supposed to be erotic amusement at the plight of her male prisoners, she seems to drift off before remembering she's being offered money for old rope, at which she thought the mildest of smirks returns. In a 2004 interview, she declared that after making The Girl from Rio, she decided she had enough of making movies. Watching the film, you'd swear you could see her reach the decision as the camera turns. In the book Murderous Passions, author Stephen Thower writes, the central notion of a city of women preparing to overthrow masculine dominance and take over the world is yet another riff on the old Planet of Women story that so obsessed sci-fi specialist in the 1960s and 70s. However, feminists will find little to cheer about because in difference to Sax Romer's novels, the conquering force of womanhood is portrayed as essentially fascist. If one of my go- girls isn't perfect, she must die, Sears. Sumatra, or whatever she's called. The film's vision of the alternative matriarchal society is all whips and corsets. From the point of view of gender politics, the film is at best farcical, at worst insulting to women. The story offers male viewers a lukewarm sip of female domination fantasy and a cool refreshing pint of masculine moral righteousness, as this matriarchy is shown to lack a shed of decency in dealing with its own. Women, it seems, may be allowed a few teases and the right to wear kinky outfits, but once she's been for a run around the block in her dominatrix gear, she could be shoved back in her place because she's just not ready to die. Despite being a story about a strong woman, the girl from Rio has nothing useful to say about feminism. That's because its real subject is male masochism. How far can they go, women who hate men? Pants the advertising for the film's Spanish release as La Cuidad Sin Hombres, City Without Men. It's remembering that the tag of 
man-hater was a common criticism leveled at feminists in the second wave of women's liberation in the 1960s, but the script here can't be bothered to ask why a woman might hate a man. Three authors are at work in The Girl from Rio, Jess Franco, Sax Romer, and Harry on Towers. What unites them is the pleasure of seeing powerful women as sexual fantasy figures, but it's equally important to stress how their attitudes differ. The film portrays Sunanda as simultaneously desirable, frightening, and contemptible. So, can we delineate and separate out the authors of these conflicting messages? I think we can. Franco, as his work has proven again and again, loves women. He adores them. From him we get the element of desire, along with misandry, the conviction that men are inferior. Franco expressed on numerous occasions and re- reiterated to me personally his feeling that women are superior to men. But in The Girl from Rio, at least, that superiority is merely a projection of male masochism and has precious little to do with women themselves. From Romer, we get the fear of strong women. Romer wrote his Sumuru stories immediately after the Second World War, and it's often pointed out by historians that the women's movement was boosted by the war effort. Women manned the factories making weaponry, acted as searchlight operators, played a major role in code-breaking, and joined units like the Women's Auxiliary Fire Service and the Women's Auxiliary Police Corps. In this climate of increased female prominence, Romer's decision to create a female supervillain intent on ruling the world looks very much like a nervous response to the social changes of his day. A common reactionary tactic when a group challenges social inequity is to imply that equality is not enough for them, hence the notion of women ruling the world and subjugating men. Again, the Second World War provides a context for the narrative. Romer dreamed up. Female and Female emancipation in the Sumuru stories go beyond a striving for equality. Instead, Sumuru's goal is to establish a Nazi-inspired new world order with herself as divine ruler. Men without useful skills or pleasing physical attributes are to be eradicated. Her vision involves eugenetics and state-sanctioned murder. Only those with great physical beauty and or great brains would survive. They would be mated with her selected women and so produce a perfect race the hero explains in The Slaves of Sumuru, 1951. Romer's villainous is thus a response to both the Nazi menace and female independence, mixed together with the swooning enjoyment of the erotics of it all. Putting aside the fact that this was a rushed, indeed botched production, the problem with The Girl from Rio is simply that it lacks the liberating explicitness that provides its own justification in Franco's later cinema. The sexual provocation is too mild to titillate, much less stir up the erotics of male anxiety. And while the sets and bizarre costumes are fun, you could tell it's the late 60s, there's plastic absolutely everywhere. This time, Frank wasn't able to synthesize a compelling fantasy from the constituent parts. Franco on screen. Frank was seen briefly playing guitar on the promenade as Weiler and Rome are attacked. A promenade as Weiler and Rome are attacked. Cast and crew. The only intriguing character in The Girl from Rio is Mashius, played by veteran British character actor George Sanders. His urbane, comedically squeamish, comic book-reading crime boss is a comprehensible, intelligent villain, believable eccentricities, performed with Elan by a quality actor. Of course, we know that Sanders committed suicide a couple of years later in 1972, leaving a suicide note that read, Dear World, I am leaving because I am bored. I feel like I have lived long enough. I am leaving you with your worries in the sweet cesspool. Good luck. Fortunately, with Sanders' com- 
completing seven more feature films after completion of The Girl from Rio, one cannot really implicate Franco directly. Making the first of six appearances for Franco is actress Bini Cardoso, playing Sunanda's lesbian assistant, Yana. The lesbian angle, according to Shirley Eaton, was added after she left the production. Indeed, it's obvious in the scene when Sunanda and Yana get down to some discreet canoodling that it's not Eaton in the scene, but another woman facing away from the camera, wearing a blonde wig about twice as long as Eaton's. Cardoso is always a welcome present in Franco's movies, and she has an interesting bony face, a sort of South American Liza Minnelli, and she can convey both cruelty and her own eccentric brand of warmth. Though one of the least celebrated of Franco's regulars female performers, she's a gifted actress with, when given a decent role. Locations. Chiefly the seafront ho- hotel of Rio de Janeiro, the Museum of Modern Art in Rio de Janeiro, and the city's Gayo Antonio Carlos Jobin International Airport. Connections. The Girl from Rio was conceived by Harry Allen Towers as a sequel to his earlier production, The Million Eyes of Sumuru, 1967, directed by Lindsay Schoenteff and starring Eaton, along with Klaus Kinski and Frankie Avalon. Sumuru was the female villain in a series of five pulp novels by Sax Romer. The Sins of Sumuru, also known as Nude and Mink, 1950. Sumuru, a.k.a. The Slaves of Sumuru, 1951. The Fire Goddess, a.k.a. Virgin in Flames, 1952. Return of Sumuru, also known as Sand and Satin, 1954. And the wonderfully titled Sinister Madonna, 1958. The character was first aired in 1945 in a BBC radio serial of eight half-hour episodes called Shadow of Sumuru. At the time, the BBC were loath to commission Romer's Fu Manchu character out of concerns for the offense it might cause. The idea of an organized cabal of women plotting to overthrow a patriarchal society is ported over from Franco's recent Kiss Me Monster, in which Marta Reeves played in the Shirley Eaton role. Franco would revisit similar themes in a much more sexually provocative vein in 1977's Blue Rita, shot under the watchful eye of Swiss producer Erwin C. Dietrich. A, ma- a matriarchal society would also be depicted in the daft but quintessentially amusing Machis contra les reines des Amazons, the Amazons, 1973. The glass cages in which prisoners wriggle in torment reappear in Franco's slight but enjoyable Linda, 1981. Jess was evidently rather taken with the great train robbery of 1963, following a quip on the subject from Roseanne Yanni and Sadist Erotica. Here we encounter a certain Westlake, who has been relieved of his ill-gotten gains and enslaved on Femina. At the time this was made, Ronnie Biggs was still domiciled in Rio, avoiding extradition to Great Britain. If Franco had persuaded Biggs himself to play the part, he could have trumped the Sex Pistols manager Malcolm McLaurin and filmmaker Julian Tipple, who pulled the stunt ten years later in The Great Rock and Roll Swindle. There are other versions of this film. There is a uh, German edition. There is a Spanish cut and a Greek video release that has basically future women allegedly an American TV version, which is, in fact, pretty close to the Girl from Rio edit. This is, again, Episode 7. And if you want to get a hold of us, you can find us at francoobserver at yahoo.com. You can find us on all listening platforms. If you're hearing this already, you know that. Amazon, um, Apple Podcasts, Apple iTunes, Google Music, uh, I'm sorry, uh, Google Podcasts, um, Stitcher, YouTube, uh, we have a YouTube channel too, you can check us out, find us there on YouTube, 
all the episodes are there for your listening enjoyment. Uh, but yeah, hope you enjoy the review portion of The Girl from Rio. Adios. Stay warm. Hello once again to the Franco Observer podcast. We are doing on this one, episode seven, The Girl from Rio. This is uh, film 19 that Jess Franco shot. And uh, of the, see, for film 19. And uh, this is the second film he did with Harry Allen Towers as producer. Uh, This is another Zoom episode. And on this episode, I have my friend, Dan Farron from Los Angeles, California. He's uh, had a run in the wrestling industry as a promoter and referee and behind-the-scenes deals. And he's also a stand-up comedian and had his own um, storyteller series um, as a, in a um, spoken word in Los Angeles area. Uh, I want to say thank you, Dan, for joining the show today. Hey, thank you, Jason, for having me. I, I always enjoy talking about movies and always enjoy talking to you about movies. So it's great to be here. Yeah, it's cool. I, I asked Dan a little bit and tried to figure out on these ones with people that don't live near me. We try to go over a list of Franco films that are available on YouTube, Tubi, uh, Amazon Prime, or some of my friends and guests have their own collection. And uh, sometimes they'll have a film in this one. So on this film, The Girl from Rio, I watched my uh, Blue Underground DVD. Uh, how did you watch this film, Dan? I watched it on YouTube. Okay. So I know it's on Amazon Prime also, but I figured YouTube, uh, and I was glad with the YouTube. The YouTube one was the complete uh, uncut uh, edition. So. Was there the nudity in that one? Yes, there was. Oh, wow. Okay, good. That, I'm I know. actually kind of shocked by well, that. So, so watch it while you can. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> because. YouTube figures that out, yeah. Yeah, because watching this, because I've watched this like back in uh, maybe 2004 for the first time, and the first time watching it since then, about 16 years later, and I forgot how much nudity was in this, especially like yeah. first shot, you start off like about a minute and oh, change yeah. in, and there's like nudity right off the bat. Oh, yeah, it, it really was amazing, too, because it was funny, because uh, when we first talked about doing this film, um, I thought, well, I don't think I've seen this one before. Uh, and then I started watching it and I was like, I think I have seen this one before, uh, but in, in different, uh, in different cuts, uh, I, I realized of course that I'd seen the Rift Tracks version, uh, which, uh, which didn't have any of the, the nudity or anything like that. And it. it was, it was cut for time. Uh, I think I, I may have seen the future woman cut once before, uh, oh, wow. because a lot of things were, um, uh, and, and that's where it, the future it, it, the future woman cut is the one that shows up on those 400 uh, movies for a dollar 98 or whatever you know that you get some places uh but they did that but i was i was kind of taken back by it tell you the truth a little bit uh pleasantly surprised but taken back by it uh because uh it, I, I was very surprised on youtube to find that they had uh, they had run through with that but um uh, yeah, it was, it was, it's funny. It's weird when you watch a movie and you think you've never seen it before and you start to go, wait a minute, this is, this is looking very, very familiar, but just in different forms. Yeah. There's many different cuts of this. That's cool that you saw the future women version. And I didn't know that that cut is in those multi-disc versions that you'll see yeah. of different films. Yeah. Cause that I believe was the AIP TV version that played. Yeah. Cause the American version that played theatrically was called, um, mothers of America when it played here. 
which is odd because it was kind of going on the uh, a feminism, uh, a hippie movement, you know, Mothers of America type deal in 68, 69. So, you know, it was kind of going off that. And then when it was sold to AIP for the theatrical distribution, they distributed a few of the films like that. And um, Future Women was the title when it, when it played that way. So, and then also too, I think that has the, it has the shot from uh, uh, Blood of Fu Manchu with Shirley Eaton where she's uh, wearing the veil that's used in yeah. that. Because that used, shows up in the Spanish print that was about two years later than the uh, original one. And that's also the AIP print. Yeah. So, um, yeah. So the, uh, the blue underground one I watched is really good. There's uh, about a 15 minute uh, documentary about it with Jess Franco and um, Shirley Eaton and uh, Harry Allen towers. And uh, he kind of talks about it. And what's cool is um, they shot this in February, 1968. And basically Franco shot so fast that he shot the film about a week before the big uh, carnival sequence mm-hmm. where they had the parade in town. So during that, so they had an extra week where they had, a, had nothing to do. And they figured since they had all the actors and the technicians and everybody there, uh, the producer, Harry Allen Towers, met with Franco. And over the weekend, Harry Allen Towers wrote 99 Women. And then he gave that to Franco. And they shot some of the jungle scenes during those five days. He shot about 25 minutes of screen time of that film during the five-day break in between that, those scenes. So I thought that was pretty fucking economical and pretty damn cool. Yeah, a lot of guys, a lot of guys that do low budget films, they uh it's amazing what they how the smart they get to, to shoot stuff. I forgot the the director's name, but uh he was friends with John Carradine years ago and shot just these miscellaneous weird scenes that he would come up with. Uh and he basically for the like the next 10 years after Carradine died, just kept dropping these scenes in. He would write stuff around it just to be able to use that over and over again. And it really is amazing what some of these guys do. It's brilliance on a budget. It really and truly is. Was it Fred Olin Ray or? It might have been Fred Olin Ray, who also I saw in some wrestling shows too. I mean, yeah. it's funny how it all kind of merges together after a while, you know, long enough. I know. There's a, there's a lot. It was funny talking to you about, about how they filmed this and about during that weekend of break and how they shot another thing at Tully had that independent wrestling mindset to me about how they have yeah. this time. Uh-huh. Instead, they could turn around and do this, this, and this at that <laughs> time until they make side money, and that's totally, totally yeah, smart. Yeah, exactly. exactly. It's like if you have workers in town for one show and you're another promotion, you can run shows on the day before or the day after that event, get everybody that's in town to come, yeah. that's coming to see that event and still you know, take that money from you, the crowd yeah. as well. So. Or, you, yeah, or you wind up basically cutting a deal with another promoter. I'll take him Saturday. You have him Sunday, you know, and that kind of stuff. I've worked on, on shows like that. And uh, I also knew a lot of very old school wrestling promoters back when the, the WWF or whatever at that point, and the, uh, when the, the changes happened in the 1980s, would say, oh, well, you know, the WWF's in town this weekend. I'm sure I could get a Tony Atlas or one of those guys to come work my show afterwards. And I thought, boy, you have no idea how times are changing. You have no idea. Oh, yeah, I know. Vince kind of changed that. Vince Jr. in like about, what was it, with Andre, like about 85 or 6, whatever. He kind of cut back on the secondary bookings. And then he allowed it again in the 90s, and he cut back again on that. Yeah, exactly. But uh, so it's cool. Okay, so on this one, uh, Girl from Rio – uh, I'm going to go ahead and give the uh, um, synopsis of this from uh, Murderous Passions, the Delirious Cinema of Jesus Franco, Volume 1, by author, by author Stephen Thrower. 
Uh, it's a really great source material book. You can get it at Amazon.com. I highly recommend it and use it all the time. Okay, the synopsis. <clears throat> Jeff Sutton flies to Rio from the USA, having apparently stolen $10 million. Arriving at a hotel, he seduces a beautiful manicurist called Leslie. Her audacious theft has attracted the attentions of one of Rio's leading gangsters, Sir Massis, who sends his lackeys to abduct Jeff and Leslie. They fail due to Jeff's fighting skills. When a newspaper pushed under Leslie's hotel room door reveals that Jeff is wanted for theft, she proposes that perhaps the two of them should fly away somewhere safer. Jeff agrees. However, Leslie is separated from Jeff at the airport, apparently abducted. Jeff boards a plane without her and is promptly drugged by the stewardess. When he comes around, he finds himself in a city called Femina, on a small island unknown to the world at large. It's populated entirely by women and ruled by a, by a tyrannical female called Sunanda. Rich businessmen are lured to the island by feminine agents, only to find themselves imprisoned, drugged, tortured, and stripped of their assets. Jeff is placed in a glass cage along with a variety of other unfortunates, including Ula, daughter of a wealthy businessman. Jeff reveals to Ula that he's really not a criminal. He's a secret agent hired by her father. When Sunanda discovers Jeff's deceit, she plans special tortures for him. However, one of the guards feels sorry for the pair and unlocks their cell. Jeff and Ula escape back to Rio, where Jeff is captured by Sir Massis. Dismayed to learn that the money was simply a ruse, he forces Jeff to lead a raiding party to steal Sunanda's gold. But Sunanda is waiting. Rather than give in, she opts for total annihilation of the island. So, Dan, what did you think of the movie? Uh, it is a funky movie. It, <laughs> it is really, really interesting. Um, I remember, you know, it's, it's obviously, it's 1960s, so it's coming off of the, the James Bond vibe and stuff. And all, I always enjoyed a lot of the, the European spy films that they used to do around that time. Everybody was always doing a knockoff on Bond. And they would go to America and, and they would get, somebody like an Adam West or a Gene Barry who were old TV stars and had a name at least overseas and they would stick them in these movies. Uh, and, and that's kind of what it felt here. Um, it was, it's, it's really interesting. The levels are kind of go all the place. It gets funny and then it tries to be serious. I don't think I've ever seen torture by fan before uh, where, where they yeah. take a, a small portable fan and try to, uh, to force uh, the, the, um, the, the to force the leading man into uh, in doing what they want him to do. Uh, the guy, um, or Richard Weiler, who plays uh, Jeff, uh, is kind of your all-purpose leading man. He's not very interesting. He's rather boring. He has horrible taste in sport coats. Uh, and, uh, you know, he's here with this $10 million, supposedly, uh, to, uh, you know, to try to start some sort of uh, a battle between George Sanders, who's the, the villain, the gangster, and uh, Shirley Eaton. Uh, evidently, this is Shirley Eaton's last film. Uh, yes. she, was so she was so impressed by the whole process <laughs> that she quit acting right afterwards. Uh, but she, uh, she's always good. I mean, that's one of those things, again, it's uh, the 1960s. You want to get somebody in who has a, has a spy vibe to them. So why not get the girl from Goldfinger, the very beginning of it? And actually, I was reading the other day, she's still alive at the time we're doing this. And now she's like the only surviving member of the original cast of Goldfinger. They're the only, wow. the only one left out of all those. Um, I, it, she, she's very interesting. She always comes off really, really, really well on screen. Uh, she doesn't look like she always knows what's going on in here, but I did, do you get the same feeling Jason on this, that this film feels very segmented. Like they shot 
a bunch of it and they stop and they try to figure something else out and they shot another bunch. Uh, does that come, does that come across to you at all? Oh yeah, most definitely because like with this, uh, watching the documentary afterwards, she basically said that after this film, she got on the board, the plane, and she went home to her husband and she was crying and just said, I, this, this is it. I'm done working. I don't, I don't want to do any more films. Um, you know, I mean, and like Franco said, she photographed really well, but she wasn't the girl in gold that everybody thought. Um, yeah. cause that was another model. And then like with her, he said that she was pretty and, and she, she did films from like, uh, 60 to 68. So, and, and looking at her, her, um, filmography she did quite a bit during that time but like with this um she is good as the lead and my thing was she kept flashing her eyes like that was her character's gimmick and then she just kept if you watch she flashes her eyes like every scene she's in is like her big thing you know of her being surprised of being mad of being uh you know in charge whatever that's her tell is her flashing her eyes um but yeah like you were saying, like with the whole secret agent thing, you could tell that, I mean, she got top billing, but she, I don't know. I mean, her screen time is really not a lot in here. Yeah. And it did feel fragmented because uh, there's a scene that's in uh, Blood of Fu Manchu that they shot during this, that they edited into that, where she's wearing the veil at the very end of the film where the, her and the six girls get away on the boat with the veils on. And so that was probably shot first. Um, and then worked into the uh, Fu Manchu film. But with her stuff, they filmed all of her scenes before the parade started. And then the scene where uh, Yaya, her second assistant, comes in. Um, uh, or, I'm sorry, um, um, Yana. She comes in Yana, yeah. her bed and seduces her. That's another actress with a wig on. And she didn't like that because her she filmed the scenes with the guys and she didn't know that her character was a lesbian even though they show that throughout the film with her characters uh second in charge always being with her and such but the scene where she peels off her pasties or her her black outfit in the bed and everything that's another actress and there's a couple other things um but yeah so like my notes on this um Franco always shows nudity like right off the bat. And in this, mm-hmm. like, this is like, uh, I clocked it in. Let's see. What was the running time? Uh, uh, first shot. Uh, I guess I didn't clock it in. But like five seconds. Is that what it meant? Yeah, I know. It's, uh, <laughs> it's basically, <laughs> let's see. Oh, no, I'm sorry. Uh, eight seconds. Yeah. Eight seconds into the first yeah. shot. Basically you have a, 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 a dance number which is cool because franco is popular for every these podcasts that talk about if this film has a dance scene or not and in this one you see it with uh, uh yana who's um uh played by benny cardoso and benny cardoso was the actress that's in quite a few of the later franco films this yeah the first one that she acted in i saw her in uh barbed wire doll she's in she's in uh women behind bars and i think she's in downtown as, yeah and she's in a, a downtown as well of those those yeah. are the next three and she's and she's and she's good i always she's yeah she's, she's really good actually command, a good henchman or really, i really enjoyed her work uh, i felt like she was much more into it than shirley eaton was at this point yeah she kind of resembles maya rudolph and uh, eliza minnelli kind of with her eyes and her face and her body and everything she's really really pretty. yeah and she's very very cool exotic um so yeah you see a topless shot of her and uh, she's kind of seducing this guy uh, writhing around in the fog. And 
And the guy, I was laughing because I'm like, oh, cool. It's, uh, I have Dan Farron on, so I could tell him. The guy that she seduces at the very beginning kind of looked like Greg Oliver a little bit to me. I started laughing. <laughs> There's an in-joke. Uh, that's gonna, yeah, that'll play to about four or five guys. In the yeah, he has great, yeah. yeah, Greg's chin in the side shot. Hey, that looks like Greg Oliver. <laughs> So you see her uh, seducing this guy, and then he starts writhing around, and there's a red light on him, and Franco uses a red light on people in quite a few of his films. Not every one, but quite a majority of that. So you see that, and uh, it's shot through the netting while a wigged Shirley Eaton watches. Um, and uh, there's a nice shot of her overlooking the body of that. And then it goes into the credit sequence from The Girl from Rio and the theme which is kind of cool because the theme is the girl from Rio and they speak the title and the theme. And I always like when yeah. the name of the theme is either spoken by the character or, or in the theme song or something like that, the actual title of the film, you know? Um, and then you see beach footage again, which you see a lot in Franco films and ocean. He always has a body of water, usually like in the first few minutes of his films. Uh, so that's a familiar opening. Um, there was cool. There's a, a cool sequence of, uh, these funeral hearse trucks that were cool. And he said that he found those in uh, Rio de Janeiro and off the, and like the barrios and stuff. You see these trucks that are kind of like hearses with the gold sides on them. Those are pretty cool. I don't know if you saw those or remember that part of the film. Yeah, I, I do remember them because it, it, it very struck me as something being very Las Vegas, to tell you the truth. Uh, yeah. but that's perfect for a beach community there. Uh, and especially because you have uh, George Sanders henchman there who is, is kind of like, you know, everybody after Goldfinger needed to have a henchman, you know, at some point, some secondary character, like in the Bond films that always would come back at the end and attack James Bond after the, the main story was over. And uh, I forget the actor's name who was playing him, uh, was very much, I, I thought, in the mode of, um, of, uh, of guys that appeared in, in some of the later Bond films, uh, the Roger Moore ones, and especially these guys, were, that guy reminded me of somebody from, that would have been perfect in Diamonds Are Forever. Just this kind of little mousy little guy uh, who's there to help. Because it, it made perfect sense because the George, I think the George Sanders character is not exactly uh, fear-inducing at all in this, in this no. movie. He's, uh, and I, I read a little bit about George Sanders at that point was actually in the, in the downward portion of his career. And he was evidently suffering from dementia a little bit and had trouble standing. Yes, that's true. Uh, that's why so, he's sitting down so, in a lot of the scenes. Yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, things they were trying to do to make him a little more fearsome. And obviously he was there for one reason. He was a name at that time. He was a well-known actor from the 40s and the 50s. And, uh, you know, again, it always helps to have a well-known character, even if it's just five or ten minutes here or there, because he really doesn't have a lot to do with the, the actual story. It's kind of a secondary thing. Um, but, uh, you know, the one sequence where they're... Um, uh, where they're or they're torturing um, Maria Rome by uh, sticking her head in the pool, uh, which which uh, I guess the the intention was to make that like what a sleazy guy he is, but you see him like yawning and reading a Popeye comic book and stuff. Yeah, like he's laying on the couch with the Popeye. So, book. You know, yeah, so it doesn't feel like you know that she's really in any kind of danger at any point of that, and, and, you know, in that. And, uh, he seems that he seems to be kind of like almost comic relief villainy, you know. Well, it's funny too because this kind of came out around the time of. Uh, of um, Danger Diabolique too, and it's got that comic yeah. strip kind of feel to it. Yep, um, exactly. and it does have the James Bond feel, like you were saying, because um, 
uh, he's kind of uh, George Sanders' character is kind of like a gangster in this, but he is more of a Bond henchman. I was thinking about that, like with the chase scene with the funeral truck hearses and that. Yeah. That could be, mm-hmm. be totally out of like a '70s Bond film that came later after this, you know. Um, yeah, and that guy you were talking about—that's uh, the character's name is Carl. That's uh, Sir Massey's assistant. Yeah. Um, Herbert Fleischman was was that guy's name. Yeah, he was good. He was actually good, but he never uh, he never uh, basically. I, I never felt like it. This guy got his gun knocked out of his hand more times in this film than I think anybody has yeah. seen a henchman. Every time you know he pulled a gun on somebody within two seconds, uh, you know Jeff would knock it out of his hand. It was it always went that way. And then he would uh, berate his 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 henchman for not being able to catch him when he you know he's a very bad boss is what he is. He's a yeah, very bad totally, leader and a very bad boss. Yeah, Carl gets the shit beat out of him and all that. Uh, <laughs> but yeah, that's jumping ahead. So yeah, so there's um, beautiful exterior shots of Fog Hills. I thought of. Um, um, Samoru's fortress. Uh, there's a cool shot of her speaking into a flower microphone, which is a cool, like, economical shot of just having a cool flower speaking into it, yeah. and then using that as a special effect. That's like a really low budget thing for a filmmaker to use, and that's a cool tip for other filmmakers to kind of see <laughs> touches like that where you could use things, and and it passes. I thought for this, you know, because it adds that comic book feel to it. Um, it also makes it, it makes it very exotic too, something very different than just an, a standard microphone, you know. Like yeah. if you were talking into right now into like a, a a large potted plant or something, that would that would give you a different feel for it, and it would make it the scene interesting. Because let's face it, people talking in, in into microphones is not the most exciting thing on screen at that time. You got to do something to it to make it more interesting. Exactly, and then yeah, it, it would give for the sense of power of that. Good, very good call. Yeah, and then there's some cool shots of the all of her soldiers listening. A lot of cool exterior shots showing the size of her armies. Uh, her soldiers had really cool outfits, kind of like almost futuristic, kind of '70s with like the shoulder pad kind of leather outfits and the high boots and the either topless or the flesh flesh colored bras underneath. I thought those were a yeah. cool touch. I I do want to say it's always very interesting because you see uh, there's a bunch of films from that time period. Uh, which deal with, uh, I, which I think is kind of like uh, uh, a reaction to women's lib coming out of, around that time. Oh, yeah. And that is a, a lot of these films that are, of course, written by men. Uh, I do question some of the fashion sense. I don't know how, uh, they're very cool looking uh, uniforms. I don't know how uh, practical they are, uh, you know, when you're, when you're running and shooting to have uh, breasts uh, flying all akimbo like that. Uh, yeah, it doesn't yeah. look like it. Doesn't it looks good? But it looks good for the guys that are watching it. But I think most women would look at this and go, "No, no one would wear this uniform to to try to take over the world." Uh, you know? Yeah, it's definitely more of a visual sense. But it's almost like Hitler yeah. too with the uniforms as well, because you see a scene later on of uh, her second in charge, and she's wearing a, a SS uniform for the yeah. a Carnival outfit. And I was thinking about that, how she was kind of like Hitler. Um, Samuru, you know, and that was kind of like her army and, and her yep. ideas and her deal. Um, so then uh, you see, um, it's funny, so then it cuts to this really slow padding scene where there's like a dancing scene where uh, the lead, Jeff's dancing, and it's kind of really boring and slow. And then uh, Jess Frago's always criticized or, or known for zooming in and out. And there's one where they show a sunset and he zooms out from it and he holds it for about 10 to 20 seconds and then he zooms in again and then it cuts to a nice beach shot but it was just like that's totally way way unnecessary um but then there's and then he he follows that with a really nice beach shot at sunset and uh then it cuts to um 
uh, Rhea Rome comes in and uh, she plays um, Leslie Manners, the manicurist for, um, for uh, Jeff Sutton's character. And she's wearing a black wig in this, which is cool because she's blonde normally. And she wears the black wig. At first I thought it was a disguise, but she wears it all the way through the film. Um, it's really cool when you first see her. She's wearing this like um, see-through kind of like a black lace mesh dress. And she's wearing no bra on it and she's wearing a G-string. So it's visually like there's her nudity right off the bat. And, and uh she runs in these high heels because they're getting, there's a cool scene <laughs> of this like mask guy with a cigarette and he gives him a light. And then these other two masked men come out and they have knives and she takes off running on these like bricks and concrete with her high heels, like for quite a bit. And it's not a stunt double either. She does all of her own stunts and, and him too. And uh, I was watching close to see if there was another actress face or anything, but it's totally them all the way through um, really good stunts. There's a, there's a good fighting scene in that. Um, and then, uh, then it cuts to after that, they go back to their place and, um, Maria has a shower scene where she's nude in that. And then you see her with this, uh, open side robe on, uh, wearing the wig and she's wearing the wig in the shower. And then also too, she's wearing the wig later on when she's, uh, uh, drowned in the pool, trying to get the answers from her. And it's pretty funny that that wig stays on the whole time. <laughs> uh, that was pretty funny. And also too, with this, um, the stolen loot briefcase, he used that later in, um, women behind bars and that when they stole a briefcase full of diamonds. And in this, it's a stolen briefcase with $10 million supposedly that we don't see, you know, just a briefcase. So that was a motif that he used later. Um, there's a cool car chase scene with the funeral trucks chasing Maria. And that I thought was pretty cool. Uh, she's wearing an orange blue dress with red stockings. She has a cool dress with like all these faces on it. And it's funny. So, and then when they go to the airport to get away, he gets on a plane and there's a topless uh, flight attendant, which, it was an interesting airlines. I don't know. I, I'm sure that seems to be That kind of caught my attention. I was like, that should be a tell right there that that might not be the plane you're supposed to be on. Or maybe it is. I don't know. It depends on where you're going. Yeah, but. exactly. But yeah, that, that was pretty funny. So you see that. And then um, you see, yeah, she's wearing, she's a uh, topless flight attendant and she has cape and gloves on. And then, uh, and then you see, um, a, a cool shot with all the other women soldiers on the plane and they're, sitting forward and they all turn around and look and that was kind of used in other films i've seen before and after that that shot of kind of like a zombies or of people all together turning and looking on a plane or on a car or something where they're not supposed to be there you know um that was kind of cool and then you see uh the view from george sanders balcony is amazing the place where he has his getaway you see like i guess rio uh from his place and it's it's a really really nice nice location they have there and yeah in this film it visually looks really good has real yeah. colors. Uh, the locations are just just cool, just to look at everything in the background, all the hills and the, the seas. Yeah, it's very it's very brightly lit for a, for a Franco film. I think there's not you know people who are used to some of his his stuff like Dracula and whatever, which are a lot darker and uh, a lot more shadows and whatever. This is very much a daylight film. This is not a film that really, with the exception, I think, of one scene really takes place at night. Everything else, yeah, the night day. scene, and then maybe in her lair, it's kind of dark there. But he uses red lights, yeah. and blue lights, and things to light, to light up. But yeah, so you see, um, Sunanda's bedchamber. Her her name's changed a few times in this. It's funny. Yeah, so, yeah. <laughs> uh, and then uh, you see the uh, naked women in like a fogged glass cages. I thought that was pretty cool. You see all these different cells that are glass, and it's a pretty cheap idea, but it looks like it makes sense. And they have all the fog in the bottom to kind of keep them drugged up or whatever. Um, and there's a, there's like uh, 
this nude woman in there that's completely naked that I guess they filmed those scenes after Shirley Eaton had left because she didn't know all that nudity was in there. So she was kind of shocked at seeing the film later on and seeing her character with the wig on with the other woman and then the naked woman completely naked in the cells rolling around and stuff. She was pretty shocked by that. Um, but yeah, it was filmed really cool. Um, and then you see, um, let's see, uh, you have some, let's have a lot of cool sets. You see her room with the glass ceiling overlooking the interrogation room. That was kind of cool. Um, like I was saying before, this had a lot more nudity than I remembered watching it. From the yeah. Film. Um, there's a lot of cool fogs in the scene. There's, oh, uh, at 59 minutes in the film, I spotted a crew member. Usually each time, <laughs> each, each film, I try to find something. Uh, I found it on, um, um, coming up on uh, Women Behind Bars, I found a, a blooper, or on Barbara Wire Dolls, I forgot which one it was, one of those. And on this one, I found it at, let's see, where was I at again? At uh, 59 minutes in, uh, let's see, darn it, I just jumped. Oh, yeah, okay. So at, at 59 minutes in, you see a crew member during the escape when uh, uh, Maria Rome's character and Jeff are getting on the plane and uh, after being let out by the cell by... Um, by Ayana, they uh, are trying to make a flee and get on the plane to escape. Well, you see a man that's standing in the top right-hand corner of the screen above the two women that are firing machine guns. And there's supposed to be no men on the island that are there to be around him. And this guy is kind of standing in the <laughs> shot, and he kind of looks to the camera, and then it cuts away from him real fast. Um, but, yeah, you see that. The guy's wearing a blue shirt in that one. Um, yeah, she uh, Shirley Eaton. I, I noticed that she flashes her eyes quite a bit on this as her character. Um, uh, George Sanders, his he has a tax accountant character. She's a cool actress in this. She looks like um, Diana Rigg quite a bit. That kind of uh, sparked me on that. I remembered. Um, yeah, she was she was really really good. She was she was there for comic relief, you know. And there was a, a great scene earlier on where she's wearing a bathing suit at the pool or whatever, and uh, she's doing this. Doing all, always doing uh, calculations for him on one of those really ancient, uh, you know, adding machines. And uh, Sandra says, "What are you doing? Why do you dress that way?" And she goes, "You don't like it, you know, like it was like such a big deal." But she, yeah, he goes, she threw out. He goes, Go uh, he goes, uh, "What happened to your clothes?" And she goes, "I don't know." Yeah, yeah, exactly. She's very funny, and uh, she and she really, really uh, helps those scenes a lot. I, I think maybe it's kind of like a counterpoint because Sanders could do so little. They had they needed someone who could do some broad stuff like the the when they bring Jeff back later on uh, you know the, the poker playing scene or whatever that kind of stuff. Uh, she's very very funny and uh, and uh, she uh, she has kind of a bigger part in the second half of the film actually. Yeah, she's in it quite a bit because she gets kidnapped and then she has to go and like see what's going on during the parade uh, carnival sequence and then comes back and everything. Yeah, and I didn't think she was in it that much. And it's cool too learning that at that time George Sanders kind of had a uh, yeah, depression about women and had women problems from the Gabor sisters and that. So it's cool to have her character always sitting on his lap and kissing him and kind of sparking yeah. him a little bit and giving him a little extra incentive to act and to be enjoying himself and that. And as a filmmaker and a director, I thought that was a really smart move and that helps get a, a better performance out of one of your leads like that. And also to help him yeah. as a human being and it helps everybody all the way around, you know? Yeah. It makes them comfortable. That's important to do with your stars. Yeah. Um, and then finishing up on this, um, yeah, it was cool. The, the footage in Rio, they incorporated quite a bit of that. And like with wrestling, it's like 
like we're talking about with somebody else's dime, like that's a huge production value. And it's smart that they, that they, even though they finished early and had that extra week and which they ended up using that production value of all those actors and all those floats and everybody without signing um, releases because it's a public performance and you can film public events like that without getting performers releases for that event. Cause it's a event that you're filming that adds so much to the film and it looks like they paid for it, even though they didn't really pay a dime for any of that footage, you know, and there's a, there's that great shot too of a, of a one legged man dancing, which yeah, was absolutely amazing. Yeah. The he's getting around really, spinning really and nice. dancing. Yeah. And, and they hold those and they spend some time on that. And first time I watched it, I was like, Oh, they're kind of wasting time. I thought it was padding, but then you realize how it is. And yeah, there's these people that it's a good time capsule because you see their act in about 20, 25 seconds, each person, they move on to the next person. The next person you see about five or six different acts of spinning things and dancing and, and different things. And it's very, very cool. Um, yeah. Oh, what else there? Had? Oh yeah. So then you see um, Sunanda and her second in charge. She's dressed as Cleopatra at the, at the parade. I thought that was cool. And her second in charge, uh, Yana was the SS guard at the very end. Um, Sumatra has a green S outfit on at the end. That's like her super villain wrestling yeah. outfit. It was pretty cool with the, with the big with the uh, big yellow S on the green outfit. Um, it's funny too. I noticed like her torture device is like Goldfinger too. This guy strapped to the table and the, the way it's looked, yeah. she's in Goldfinger. And I was like, oh okay, they're really getting that Goldfinger well, I think, dime out of it. You know, I, I think I think actually the, the the torture machine looks to me like it is a X-ray machine from a dental office. Truly, yeah. that's what it looks like. But having him strapped to the table and that thing getting closer and closer, and it's like the heat, yeah. and of course, Shirley Eaton and the whole spy genre. I was like, okay, you know, they're trying to, like, you know, familiar roads are always easier to walk down for, for people that yeah. are watching. Something. By the way, what a horrible way to torture that man by having those those women uh, start making out with him at one point. I mean, I, Oh, yeah, there's I, a, I, one I torture sequence. Said, you know? <laughs> yeah, it was like four or five beautiful women kissing him, and she tells him to stop and then go on, go on. Yeah, I don't know what, uh, yeah, what that exactly. was for, yeah. But uh, and it's funny too. So then there's a big raid on the compound at the end, and uh, they had like three helicopters, which was really cool. But they keep showing different um, angles of the helicopters to make it look like there's maybe like twelve or fifteen helicopters that are raiding the compounds. And you hear the same um, machine gun sound effects over and over again. It's this yeah. one sound effect sample, and they reuse it seven or eight times. But yeah, it's pretty funny. I, I was wondering, but did you get the feeling, Jason, that? They were awfully close when they were strafing some of those girls when they were coming in there. Like they were, they were awfully close. Thinking about you know the Twilight Zone uh, problem that oh, yeah, yeah. several years later, they were awfully. It felt a little dangerous there. I mean, I don't know. I mean, you have you have girls halfway dressed in in, in big heeled boots running across cement with what uh, looked like to be a helicopter maybe twenty feet above them. You know, at, at a high yeah. speed did not look appear did not appear to be safe to me. You know. Yeah, I know. Like you're saying, lucky Vic Morrow wasn't in the movie. That that, that helps. Yeah. helps. But uh, yeah, you know, and it's funny, like hearing about this film before and then actually watching it. It actually was better than I thought it was going to be. It's kind of dissed a yeah. little bit and think it's slow and stuff. But it's I thought it was really good. I mean, uh, Maria Rome's good in it, and George Sanders is good, and the guy that plays Jeff is okay, and Shirley Eaton's okay in it, yeah. and it's yeah, and it's edited really well. It's there's a couple padding sequences, but it 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 uh, moves along pretty quickly actually quicker than i thought it was going to move yeah i think for for basically for the time frame and and what they had to work with uh it's it's something that uh an audience will go to on a saturday night 
and feel like they, they saw a little bit of everything and, and they had a, a great time and they were entertained by it. And uh, it, it's very it's very similar, like I said, to a lot of the of the European. I think they call them spy fi uh, yeah. films sometimes that, that that were out at that time. And they don't you know, here's the thing is. Um, this is one of those things where, you know, the, uh, from time to time, they would probably say to the director, that doesn't make sense. And he goes, oh, nobody will care. Uh, and and it's, it's that way. I mean, like, I always find it interesting that uh, in this film, um, the, the women have time to change clothes quite a bit. Because uh, yeah. when they actually, when they, when they kidnapped uh, you know, Ula and, um, and, and the accountant, and they said, you know, meet tomorrow morning. They actually had another change of clothes for them, which I thought was very kind in that situation. <laughs> another, another change of clothes for them, you know. Well, um, it is a planet of women, know. so maybe they were thinking ahead. You know? <laughs> and, and and I'm still trying to figure out why Shirley Eaton uh, loves her wig so much. Back and forth, back and forth, back and forth that way. But uh, no, I I enjoyed it. I, I I was not surprised by the ending, which is which lets you know that Sumaru or whoever she's referred to in this movie um, uh, comes back because um, I used to read uh, as a kid, my father used to give me the paperbacks, of the old Fu Manchu novels nice. by Sax Romer. Right. And uh, the deal always was no matter how bad it got, uh, you know, there was always that moment at the end where Fu Manchu would send a message and say, I will return, you know? Right. Right. And so I'm not surprised that it was that Sumeru had that, that same thing set up at that point, but it's a, it's a fun film. It's it's light. It's fun. It's not. It doesn't take itself seriously, which is which is nice, I think. And like you're saying, at the very end, I like that 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 whole thing she had set up about it about blowing up everything. That was just a total bluff, and that yeah, they were scared, and that it was like poker. And in the end, she took all the all the gold and split, you know, and she got away. Yep, exactly. And there was her and six women, with, and they all had veils. So it was almost like the dance of the seven veils. It was kind of cool when they yeah. were all walking away on the on the ship at the end. So. Yeah, nothing like being obvious when you're leaving. I don't, don't draw attention to yourselves at all. Yeah, I know. Huh? <laughs> and you can see like the people that were probably non-actors that were just there to get on the boat. Yeah, they're, they're staring, staring watching. The dock, just looking, yeah. yeah. Everybody was just <laughs> eyes just all akimbo right on them the whole fucking time, you know? <laughs> cool. Well, uh, well, good. That, that's going to wrap up the review portion of uh, the Frank Observer podcast. This was episode seven, and we reviewed the girl from Rio film 19 uh, from Jess Franco, the second of the ninth film he did for Harry Allen towers that was filmed in February 68 and came out in 1969. Uh, so uh, thanks again, Dan Farron. Uh, do you have any plugs or anything you want to talk about or anything you like? Yeah. Uh, you know, oh God, boy, we, we, there's nothing to plug right now. The way that <laughs> the way we are, there's nothing going on. We're not doing anything. Plug, you know, plug staying at home and being safe, I guess is the whole thing there. But uh, no, I, I enjoy this. I always enjoy talking about films. And I always love, I love Grindhouse and I love uh, low budget films and I love certain uh, genre films. And uh, uh, I don't, I'm not on Twitter all that much, but if somebody, you know, does want to write or whatever and talk about stuff, I, I'm at the real Dan Farren, F-A-R-R-E-N uh, on Twitter, if uh, anybody would like to. And uh, Jason, I, I enjoyed the show. Thanks a lot for having me on. Thanks, thanks, Dan. Oh, you were you're really awesome, and I definitely hope to have you on again on a future episode. Talking more, just anytime. And also, too, talking wrestling. Uh, if you want to hear Dan, he's on uh, quite a few of the six hundred five podcast episodes. He's on there talking wrestling, and uh, Dan's one of the most knowledgeable wrestling uh, minds I know. Uh, and we're both members of the Cauliflower Alley Club, and we both support that organization. And uh, it's always really cool because during the reunions every year, that comes to Dan and Mary Lou's 
wedding anniversaries, and that's always nice that they celebrate that yeah. right the of the of the reunion. Except for this year, where we had the corona, and that put off the reunion. Yeah, that also ruined the Breakfast Club that we used to do every morning too. Because Jason was one of those guys that likes to get up early, and there's only a handful of us. Most of the guys stayed up all night. So we would always uh, meet uh, in the morning for breakfast at the buffet. But even that will be different now. <laughs> yeah, I know. The buffets are changing. I know that's a whole other thing that talking about now real life stuff away from film. Yeah, it's going to be weird going there with uh, no buffets now. and not. It's, yeah, I'm kind of curious how all this will how, how all yeah. this will be in, in uh, April, May, right around there. Yeah. But, again, thanks a lot. I, I enjoyed the show. I, I'm learning a lot about Jess Franco. My first um, – I didn't know who Jess Franco was until I – I was reading Famous Monsters of Filmland in the late 1960s, and Christopher Lee was so jonesing to do a real Dracula film after the last couple of disasters of the Hammer films that he had done as Dracula. Um, and I read that they, that they were going to do one based on the actual story, and Jess Franco was going to direct it. And uh, I wanted so badly to see that film for years and uh, wound up about five or six years after that, uh, Channel 5 out here in Los Angeles, uh, ran it on on uh, Halloween night, and I got oh. to see it. And um, and I've seen a lot of Frank. You know, Franco is one of those guys that sneaks up on you. You'll be watching a film, and you know, you you won't notice it at first. Uh, I mean, it's oh, directed by Jess Franco. Oh well, okay. This this will be. I, I I can guarantee it won't be boring, and it won't be not interesting. There's always something about that. Uh, and uh, I like it, you know his little. We didn't mention earlier, but there's a couple places where he do, does like shadows of guns on walls and things and framing. And there's a shot that's really nice. That's really that's really really nice. And uh, I, through Franco, I, I got him. I got to start watching and appreciate guys like Mario Bava and people like that. So uh, you know, I, again, I'm learning a lot about Franco. In fact, I actually went out and bought the um, the Count Dracula DVD after listening to your uh, show on it because nice, uh, good job. I hadn't seen it for a long time and uh, I wanted to see it again and uh, enjoyed it even more so. Can't figure good. out the possum eating can't figure out the possum eating thing, but that's something different altogether. Yeah, uh, and the yeah. taxidermy <laughs> at the end is very odd. The yeah, whole taxidermy exactly. scene where they're attacking him. But uh, yeah, no, it's cool with you. That's cool that you got into him through Je- through uh, yeah. Christopher Lee. Same here. I got into yeah. it like with Christopher Lee and uh, the Fu Manchu characters. So I got in watching. Yeah. Castle of Fu Manchu and uh, Blood of Fu Manchu, and that's where I where I got into getting into Franco. So yeah, it's cool. Uh, Christopher Lee is a good doorway into the Franco universe for a lot of people that, especially the American audiences, you know, try to collect all the Christopher Lee stuff and all that good stuff. And that yeah. always works I out. kind of I kind of met Christopher Lee one time, kinda, and what that happened? is uh, I got tickets for uh, one of the Pink Panther films with Peter Sellers. This is like going back like twenty twenty five years ago. And uh, more than that, like a, uh, uh, yeah, thank you. Uh, but, uh, it would have like 40 been, years ago, like 40 years ago, actually. It would have been, it would have been uh, probably late 70s. Actually. There you go. So you're, you're probably pretty close. Uh, but it was over in Westwood here, okay? Right? I, I, I was, we were sitting in there, and it was a packed house, and um, uh, I heard all this murmuring, murmur, uh, you know, murmuring behind me and whatever. And uh, actually, as the uh, the lights went down. I realized that Christopher Lee was sitting behind me. And while I enjoyed the movie, there's nothing more creepy than knowing that Count Dracula is sitting behind you in the dark. So that's, that's you know. That's cool that he went to go see movie. that because yeah. he wasn't in that probably. So he must have went to nope. go see it just as a curiosity or maybe he liked Peter Sellers. Yeah. Or who knows? They you invited, know. you know, they invite, always invite, invite a bunch of actors and whatever and that kind of stuff. So. Oh, so but, it was uh, the yeah. premiere of it then? It was like it was like a premiere, yeah. It awesome, very cool. Official, you know, that kind of thing. But it was, it was fun, but... Uh, 
yeah, no, it was uh, it, it was it was quite a treat to have Christopher Lee Count Dracula sitting behind me. What you should have did before the lights went up at the end of the movie, you should have said, "You have not heard the last of me." <laughs> I will return. Yeah, there you go. I will yeah, return. I, I I was I I enjoy I I watched those films when they came out as as kids. Uh, I remember, in fact, I got a uh, an eight millimeter projector as a nice. kid, so I could. And I and I would shoot films on eight millimeter and, and put you know music to them and whatever and do that stuff and uh, you could buy these uh, these castle films these little small fifty, oh, yeah. 50 foot awesome. real things and they also tried to do this thing at one point where they would have uh, a, a film and then it was a, this little plastic record that was the soundtrack to it with some okay. dialogue and whatever on it and I remember having one of the castle Fu Manchu films and you could it was like 10 minutes long they had cut it down to 10 minutes right and you could play it and you played the little record with it and it, it was very scratchy hard to uh, hear dialogue but all the explosions and all that kind of stuff was in there but i always my dad always would say you know we always would joke about it because i will return so says fu manchu that's right, so, that's right. Uh, yeah very cool. Well, good. Uh, you, you can catch us at uh, FrancoObserver at Yahoo.com. We also have a Facebook page, uh, Instagram page, all that good stuff. Uh, so, yeah, thanks again, Dan Farron, for joining us. And uh, I'll have you on again in the future and talk to you about this. And also on maybe a Thank side you, podcast, talk about wrestling. So Sounds good. Thanks, Dan. Talk to you later. Thank you. Bye. Bye.